0: Uh, I've been looking forward to, um, I've I've got a new Bible today. This is my first, got to get to kick the tires on preaching this new Bible, so we'll see how it preaches. Um, I'm excited about that, but I've genuinely been excited about uh, preaching, getting to preach from Jonah. Um, This is a a short book, but it is a very entertaining book, a little bit larger than life, um, that is just full of uh, many, many ironies. I think Jonah has to go down as the worst prophet of all time. Um, he's worth. I picture, I picture him with his own uh, uh, sitcom in um, in ancient Israel, just bumbling through. And um, but the thing that is that is really uh, special about this book is um, not only just the entertainment that Jonah gives us, but is, is the extravagant uh, mercy of God um, that is displayed in Jonah's life. Um, Let me give a quick, we're jumping right in the middle of some action here, so let me give a quick update on where we are. Um, Jonah is a prophet, meaning it was his job to receive word from the Lord and to communicate that word uh, to whoever the Lord wanted to speak to. And he was called to go to uh, Nineveh, the capital city of uh, the empire of Assyria. Um, who were uh, some very bad people that Jonah did not like at all. Um, And so rather than following through on the Lord's uh, command um, to Jonah, he instead tries to run away. He goes down to um, Tarshish in Joppa, which is a Philistine city. So we already get a clue here that things aren't really going well uh, right from the get-go. And he gets on a ship and is trying to run away from the Lord. When a large storm, uh, besets them and keeps the ship from making any progress. And Jonah, uh, rather than alarmed is fast asleep, um, could care less about the storm in the boat. Uh, so we are kind of parachuting in in the middle of this action. The storm is, is, is raging and the sailors are trying to figure out, uh, what is, uh, what to do. So I'm going to re- read verse seven through the end of chapter one and then I'll pray for us and, uh, we'll jump in. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, would uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight? Uh, Would you teach us this morning... Uh, would you call us even from our innermost being uh, that we might be drawn out, um, that we might fear you um, as we sit before your word and pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, want The angle I want to take on this is I want to talk about just the process of making decisions um, in life. Um, this our lives are, when we think about it, are uh, made of a myriad of decisions every day. In which we find life. Uh, our lives are not just foregone conclusions um, that come at us on assembly line, but that we are given um, a lot of agency and a lot of choice um, into what we do. Um, and so we're constantly, we're just trying, we having to decide how we're going to use our money, how we're going to spend our time, uh, what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, how much of both of those things, who we're going to love, who we're going to spend time with who we're going to forgive, and all of those kinds of things. Um, these all, our whole lives are just made up of this big uh, matrix of decisions that we have to make. Um, and the unique thing, particularly for believers, is that, you know, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that we're doing, making all of these decisions under the lordship of God. Uh, lordship means that we are not uh, the o- ultimate owners of ourselves, or of anything else um, in the world, but we are stewards. Uh, We've been given everything we have. Everything owes its allegiance to God. And so we kind of find ourselves in this place every day um, that we are trying to make the decisions that are gonna make us happy and that are gonna give us the most life and also weigh that in comparison to what, um, how God would have us to use those things against um, his lordship. Um, and this could lead us in a couple different directions as far as, um, you know, a sermon is concerned. We could talk about ethics, and that could be worth our time of trying to figure out what it is um, that is the right thing to do um, in any situation. Uh, but this, this story is going to lead us into, a, I think, what is a far more interesting and a far deeper place as we wrestle with this, and that it's going to kind of peel back the layers on our hearts And it wants to expose the process by which we end up making these decisions. It's going to get dig deep down into our hearts, um, into the human condition, um, and expose what motivates us, um, and hopefully to lay us bare before the presence of God. Um, So we can look at those things honestly, um, in light of his lordship, um, and in light of his presence. Um, And the thing we're going to find is, is that the human heart... Is not a computer, um, and it doesn't just respond to a mathematical equation, and that it is actually a very difficult thing to tame. Um, it doesn't take much. Uh, just listen on the radio, and you will hear, meta- watch shows, you'll hear metaphors of the heart being like wild horses or doing the things that it's gonna do. Um, you know, the suds in the bucket and the clothes are out on the line. You can't fence time and you can't stop love, you know. <laughs> Uh, that kind of thing—it's everywhere. Um, that it's the heart is wild, and it is very difficult to tame, and is actually more difficult to tame we will find than even the winds and the waves um, of the sea. Um, but just as it's going to reveal that aspect about um, the human heart, it is also going to reveal something that is very deep into the person of God, and that God is not a robot either. And God does not deal with us according to some kind of mathematical equation, that God's passion for us is sufficient enough not only to meet us in our passions, in our, our yearning for life, but also to exceed those things. And so as this is going to kind of dig down into the surface, we're going to look at the passions of both um, human beings and of God um, and how those relate together as, as they um, are... Uh, revealed um, here in this um, story of Jonah. So I'm going to look at it in just those two parts. Um, we're going to look at uh, the human heart of Jonah, and then we're going to look at, you know, God's response to him. Um, and looking in here in our, our passage of, you know, what's going on with Jonah, and it really just, there's no rocket science here, it just jumps out of the page, that running from God is is a very senseless thing to do. Um, it doesn't make any rational sense um, in order to do this. Like, look at these, look down in here in these details. And if you look in verse nine, everything hinges upon this confession that Jonah makes when he is speaking, uh, which is just dripping with irony here, um, to these sailors when they ask him who he is. Who's your daddy and what does he do? Um, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea. And the dry land. And so, as Jonah confesses these things, he's just revealed there is a huge contradiction that is going on here in the things that Jonah rationally believes and what is going on in his heart. So, he fears the God who made the sea and the dry land, and he currently is on the run from this guy um, in the middle of the sea. Like, he's, he's running away from somebody who, is, who owns all of these elements he's trying to use to get away. And he knows, he knows in his head that there is no way that this is going to be successful. Like, it, doesn't, it just makes absolutely no sense. And in good storytelling fashion, that the sailors actually end up providing a very helpful foil in order to illustrate this point. Like, notice how the sailors responded as soon as Jonah said this. Like, so Jonah, he believes these things about God, and he's fast asleep in the ship, and he's not doing a thing. He really doesn't care. What do the sailors do as soon as they hear who this God is that Jonah's running from? They immediately respond, and they have a great fear. Uh, There's some funny linguistic stuff in it, like if you translate this woodenly, it would be, they feared a great fear. Um, and their fear is just escalating as we go through here. These sailors actually move from being afraid of the storm, fearing, to fearing a great fear. And then in the end, that they fear a great fear uh, of the Lord. So the sailors are actually noticing what is going on, and they are responding to it in a much more rational fashion. They get the point. They get the point that it is utterly foolish um, in order to run away from God. Um, Jonah understands this with his head, but it is not going on. It is not connecting here with his heart. And I think this is the first clue. What we're saying here is that running from God or any form of sin, um, any kind of rebellion from God, it never actually makes sense. And we don't do it because it makes sense. That there's something else that is going on there that is motivating us um, in any form of rebellion we have against him. And if that's not enough, a sign of Jonah's root issue, it goes on from there. Um, Just look at Jonah's posture towards the storm. Again, he's asleep, um, and he's not even responding to this at all. Um, He doesn't, um, he could get out of this, and this text makes it very clear that he knows what the problem is. And so if he wanted to, he could end this all in a moment, that it could all go away, He could go back to his life, he could go back to the shore, he could spare all of these people, and uh, that's not what he does. And in fact, in the end, uh, when all of this is uncovered, um, about who is the root of this stuff, what does he say? Um, In kind of an almost selfless act, but what is actually a very selfish act, uh, he gives up. And he says, basically, it would be better for me to die. Um, in order to actually follow through um, according to God's will. So what's he doing? He's doing something that rationally doesn't make sense. And he's doing it so hard that he is even willing to take it into death rather than to turn around and to follow God. And why would he do this? And if we can't see ourselves in this to a degree, I think we're also missing the point. Why do any of us do this? Why do we search for life in ways where we know uh, there is no life to be found um, in this thing? I think on a positive level, this is a a positive expression of what it means to be human. I think it is actually a gift of God um, that he did not make us his computers. Uh, He did not make us our lives a foregone conclusion, but he actually made us beings uh, with motivations and loves and desires that go far beyond just what is always rational. He made us relational beings. He made us to connect with each other. He made us passionate people um, that approach life with passion. And there are more and more studies that are coming on, out about this all the time, um, about the, the things that actually motivate our behaviors, they usually come from somewhere deeper than our minds. Our minds are excellent at rationalizing our desires and making us think that they are rational decisions where they really come uh, from our gut. And God made us that way. It is a good thing. But I think it takes understanding that before we really understand the thing that is motivating Jonah. And that he has these relational capacities and now what he has is a relational problem. That a problem has entered into this relationship with God. The one that he was made in relationship for. The one who all life comes from. The one who has given him the direction in life. Has now asked him to do something that is so violating to his sense of what should happen, his sense of justice, he cannot cope. He cannot reconcile the fact that this God is the Lord of my life and this is the place he has put me or this is the place that he has asked me to do. And on one level, this is very understandable. Um, The Ninevites, they were bad people. Uh, They had committed atrocities against Jonah's people. They were known, as Charles said last week, they were known as a bloodthirsty, uh, pitiless kind of people. And it doesn't take much imagination to imagine ourselves in Jonah's shoes and saying that is not just. That we would have to put up with this for all of these years and then God would just go and exercise his mercy towards these people. And of course, if we read through the story, then that is Jonah's root problem. Uh, But we are not Jonah. Uh, We are not prophets. None of us are. We've not been called to go to Nineveh. Um, So we have to look at this in a little bit of a different light. But I think that same principle applies even to us. Is that as we are making all these decisions, we are trying to go get as much out of life as we want. And yet, we face situations that we do not want to be in. So we are having to reconcile the fact that God has, has the one who I have a relationship with has put me in this position and yet I don't like it. And this is not right. That we are having to struggle. We have a relational problem. It's not just a physical and tangible problem. It's a relational problem. Um, we have people in our lives that might be difficult. We have to reconcile that not only with the people but also with God, the one that has put us there. We have desires, things that we want very, very badly. You know, we want the house on the lake with enough time and, and income where we can let everything go away and spend it there, and we just want it so bad. This is the dream. This is what life looks like. Um, but we don't have it, and there's no pathway, no, no access to that thing at all. We're not only struggling with the tangible problem, there's a relational problem in the relationship, And the language that this letter has been using is that Jonah is not only fleeing from the command that God had given him um, in order to go and to preach to these Ninevites, is that what's he doing? He's running from the presence of the Lord. He's struggling to reconcile his passions with the commands of God. And just to illustrate how this works, y'all remember the movie Maverick uh, with Mel Gibson? This was one of my favorite movies. Um, there's this great scene where you know, Maverick is a card player, and he, he, he's, you know, he seemingly swindles a bunch of uh, people out of money, and they eventually track him down and catch him, and one holds a gun to his head, and Maverick gives a rational argument and says, you know, blowing my brains out is not going to give your money back, and to which the guy said, but it's sure going to make me feel a whole lot better. You know, that's the passionate argument. We have a rational situation and then we have a passionate, you know, argument. There are these things that are motivating our hearts um, that, that um, get tangled up in here and that get very complicated. And so what does this mean for us? I think it means a couple things. One, it is a reminder that sin doesn't make sense. And it never will. Like, it is, it is just the design of it. Uh, Or or the anti-design of it That uh, it is never going to deliver The things that we hope it will And we go to those things again and again And again hoping that these are things That are going to bring us life And they just won't There is nowhere that we can get away From God If he is the source of all of our life Then trying to find it in any other place Is madness But we all know that And that doesn't seem to have an effect On us and it is because we, too have a much deeper issue, and I think this story brings up it 's asking us to to look deeper into our hearts, to ask what our passions are, and what are the wants and desires that are motivating us, and why is it that those things feel so violating um, to not have but if this is half the issue, like you know uh, uh, then the turn here is that. Jonah is actually not the main driver of this story. Jonah's got all kinds of problems of his own, both externally and internally, that he's wrestling with. But he even still, with his ability to make all these decisions, is not the one in charge. And this is where I think the grace of God is most exemplified um, in here. It is not in the senselessness of Jonah's actions, but it is in the relentlessness of God's pursuit of his servant even in the place that he is in. Um, and of course, you know, this is the other aspect that just jumps off the page. I mean, Jonah is the worst prophet in the world. He is rebelling against, you know, the thing that God has called us to do. It makes no sense. He keeps getting himself into more and more trouble and is seemingly with, you know, the wild horses of his heart are gone and there are no way um, that is, these are going to be tamed. And yet... There is, there is no plan that Jonah makes here that is successful at all. And that is because of the merciful sovereignty of God. He tries to run away, and what does he find? That God is there, and he will not let them run away. Even these sailors, they try to, out of mercy for Jonah, they try to row back as hard as they can. To They are actually expressing the mercy that, that Jonah should be expressing in another twist of irony. We catch that. And God won't let them. And so Jonah tries to give it all up. He tries to jump in the water and say, I, rather than deal with my heart, then I'm going to go die. And God won't even let him do that. I mean, and this is not a good guy. And yet, God is not only, God is interested in Jonah, not just the mission he has called, he has called Jonah to. So, I mean, let me make one comment about the mission. Uh, Jonah, being the worst prophet, is actually being quite successful everywhere he goes, right? Um, these are pagans who, at just one word, are actually turning and fearing the Lord. So Jonah's trying to run away, and God, like God is almost humorous uh, that he is causing Jonah to be successful uh, wherever he goes. And this is a very important theme that big, through this whole letter, is God's concern for the outsider. Um, that his concern for the nations, his concern in order to extend mercy to all kinds of people, his pursuit goes wide, far wider than we uh, often dare to dream that it would. But, and we 're going to get that particularly where we get to the end. But the thing that is important here is obviously God doesn 't need this guy to accomplish this mission. He, he can do it in, in any way he wants to. He can cause people to, to see and to turn and to fear of the Lord. So God actually, his pursuit has something not only that is wide, but is very narrow and is particular to Jonah. And then in orchestrating all of these events, that the thing that God will not let him go, he will not let Jonah go until he pokes around in his heart and he is reaching him at the gut deep level of his passions and not only just his commandments. Now you might have heard the term a grace quake. Um, this is a great term that I love, is that sometimes the Lord brings us to our ends and causes all kind of calamity in our lives, and it is not evil. It is because his pursuit of the hearts of his people is absolutely relentless, and it far exceeds the passions uh, that his people have in and of themselves. So I think this is a story of, um, of great mercy. And so when we look, at, this is what it mean, what that means for us, I think. And it could be miss, we could misapply this, and we could think that any bad thing that happens, uh, oh, is God pulling a Jonah here? Is he disciplining me? Am I doing something wrong? And he is in pursuit of my heart. I don't think that this is what this means. The, the book of Job contradicts that, um, as well as many stories of Jesus in the gospel. That's not why uh, bad things always happen. But what it does mean is that everything that happens to us Every crisis that happens to us, every level of stress, every desire that we have that goes unmet is an opportunity for us to actually notice and to be open to the possibility that God is actually in pursuit of something and that he is not just being mean and he is not being unkind or withholding to us. Because where we tend to turn and run away from the presence of God, the things that God is determined and will not end his pursuit is to bring his presence to his people. Because he knows that is where we will find life. And of course we have to look at this in the wider scope of, um, um, of the whole plan of redemption. And I don't think this, there's, that this uh, book is about Jesus specifically um, in any way. But and this might be low-hanging fruit, but it is quite uh, an interesting backdrop of looking what Jonah does and how he, um, in a very selfless action, he throws himself into the water and he lets, himself, he lets himself go so that this whole thing would end, which is literally the opposite of what Christ did for us, that his pursuit is most exemplified for us in the sending of his Son on our behalf, not for the righteous, but for the wicked. And that God's pursuit, there was no end to the pursuit of what God would do in order for the sake of for you and me. And so Christ being the one to give himself up for us, being the one who never rebelled, who even before the presence of his father, when he asked that this cup be taken from him, then he said, but not my will, but your will is going to be done. And all of these are given to us as a gift. And what that means for us is that whenever we end up, you know, in whatever decisions, whatever crisis, whatever we have in front of us, our starting position is not a rebel running away from God. It is the firm security and delight of a son or a daughter whom, of course, God's pursuit will never end. But it goes further from there And I think this, this illustrates this point of what, of what God does Is that he accomplishes this our, justifi- our full justification before the throne of God He establishes our security And yet He is not willing to let our hearts go either And the whole hope you know, If we read through the prophets The hope of this is that Israel All the prophets um, a, The whole story of the Old Testament Is that no rules actually have the power to change the human heart. What we need is a new heart and a new spirit to put within us. And this is exactly what Christ does. He not only justifies us, but He gives us His spirit. And so the whole work, as we are going about our lives, trying to make sense of this stuff, we know that He is with us and He is working on us. That whatever is happening, that we have confidence that there there is a real... It's not just a possibility, it's real true it's, it's really true But for us to entertain the idea That it is possible that Jesus Actually hasn't let us go in these things But he is after us And he is determined to give us life uh, It is the full scope And the, it is the goodness of God that he pursues And that his pursuit uh, Will not let us go And so I want to end this in, in, you know, With this I want to end with the table because uh, I think when we end here with the table, that we are given these, these symbols uh, as ways that actually connect to our passions as much as they connect to our heads. Um, it is the symbol of our, of our deep need, the bread, our provision that we need every day just to make it through life. And also the wine is a symbol of great joy, the thing that our hearts crave. It is meant to communicate and speak to our passions. And so I think it is fitting that we move from here, that, when, that we turn where we are in order to receive the table. But here's, here, this is why. And this is what I want us to think about. Um, and this is the kind of thing we can think, talk about in our community groups and stuff this week. I think it all starts with a posture of the heart towards the presence of God. Because like we say, none of us are strong enough. There is no rule that we can have. There is nothing like that that actually has the power to change our hearts that resides totally in the hands of God. But one of the things the gospel says to us is that we have confidence that he is actually working. And so our role in whatever we're facing, it is not to be a hero. It is not to be disaffected. It is not to be strong. It is just simply to turn and open up our hearts to the possibility that God is actually there and that he might actually be giving us something positive. Uh, and that's where it begins. I think the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is the perfect prayer. Because it establishes our core commitment that I believe. And it also puts the effectiveness into the Lord's hand and acknowledges, I don't have the strength to do this. That is a prayer of faith, of entrusting ourselves into the hands of God. So I think that is how we engage with this work of God. It is to turn our hearts and open to be open to the fact that maybe God is at work, that maybe He is good and his faithfulness is sure and it will never ending. It will never end. And the point from there is to look and notice and see what He does. And the burden of that coming true is not on your shoulders, it is on him. So in light of that, let me pray for us that God would work, that He would help us, He would help our hearts towards him, uh, towards His presence rather than away from Him, and let's all come together to the table in faith. Um, that he will actually feed his people as he has promised. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, these uh, passages are humbling, especially as you start to poke around in areas of our own hearts where our passions are strong, our allegiances, our commitments to our own lives um, are stronger than we can bear. So we pray as we come before you and we eat of your table, we hear your word preached, That you would move and you would work you would soften us. You would turn us towards yourself. That we might see your face and your kindness. And that we might have relief from our burdens. We put this in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.